tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. Has any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church? That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Dear voice in my head, am I alive? Yes. Yes, this is live. I'm alive. You are alive and live, and we were just talking breakfast places. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we were. Yes. I'm hungry now, and I just had lunch. Oh, oh, that was. Did you just say that live? Yes, this is all I live. Can't I'm tell. live. It's You're all live. live. It's alive. There's a wonderful old. We were talking about Swedish restaurants in Rockford, oddly enough, but. That's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the Bible. So I think we'd better pray before the, the show really goes south. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we hope, pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right. You know what we do now. Of course, if I haven't misplaced it, we open the big book on the coffee table. All right. This is um, Ephesians 6, 1 to 9. And it, it's very interesting. Well, it's all interesting. It's why they call it the good book. This is a little difficult, this first reading. Uh, that said, um, uh, let us go, well, let us go briefly to the gospel reading first. Luke, the 13th chapter, the 22nd verse and following. Uh, Jesus passed through the towns and villages, teaching as he went, making his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked, Lord, will only a few people be saved? Well, what does that mean? I mean... When we talk about saved, we mean heaven when you die. At least that's what most of us mean. But I'm not sure that that's what it means in the context. Um, Jesus spoke a great deal about the coming tribulation that the Romans would inflict. And so many of the passages that people tend to think refer to the end times, I think they... They do refer in, in a general way to the end times, but they refer very specifically, I think, to Jesus prophesying the coming of the Romans. For instance, uh, when he says, where the corpse is, there the eagles gather. Huh? That doesn't make sense. Well, that's a vulture, but it's an eagle, but it's really a scavenger. No, it's, he said eagles. The word is aetoi in that quote in Greek, and it means eagles. What's he saying? Where the corpse is. And he's he's saying the temple and and the rituals of of uh, the temple are a corpse. 
He says, where the corpse is, and that's the proper Greek word for corpse, there will the eagles gather. Have you ever heard of the Roman eagles? The, the, each legion had its standard, and it was topped by an eagle, the symbol of ancient Rome, which has, of course, become the symbol of the United States, the, uh, the, the American eagle, the bald eagle. But the eagle symbolized the Roman legion. So what Jesus was saying was where the corpse is, and he makes a kind of play on words. He, you'd expect him to say where the corpse is, the vultures gather. He said where the corpse is, the Roman legions will gather. Isn't that interesting? The eagles. He uses the word eagle. So I, I don't know if this Lord only a few people be saved. I, I'm not sure. I, let, let's assume at the moment it talks about eternal salvation. He doesn't really answer the question. He tells you what to do to be saved. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Well, okay. Strive to enter the, where's the narrow gate? Don't you remember Jesus said, I am the gate to the sheepfold? Strive to enter through me. And Jesus describes himself, I think, in this passage, as a narrow gate. You can't get beyond Christ. You know, well, um, Jesus is one of the many ways to God. No, he's not. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except me. You know, it doesn't say in that passage, no one goes to heaven. That's not what he's saying. But you're never going to experience the fatherhood of God except through his son, Jesus, by being brought into him, by being adopted into the person of Jesus. And to, to, to receive God as father is to be properly related uh, to the creator of the universe. He's not just creator. He's not just a, a helper. He's not just all these other things. He's father. To be rightly related to God, you have to be rightly related through Jesus. There's no other way to do it. Now, so the only way you can go to heaven is by becoming a Christian. I, I, I don't know. I, I, the, we have good hope that, 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 that just men and women throughout the world will be rewarded by God for their, for their virtue. But what he's saying is no one is going to enter into the fullness of life except in the person of Jesus, through the person of Jesus, because Jesus is the one who brings us to the Father. And unless God is Father in your life, well, you, you don't really know God. You're not fully related to him. And he's a narrow gate. So many will try to enter, but they will not be strong enough after the master of the house has risen and locked the door. Then you'll stand outside saying, Lord, open the door for us. And Jesus is saying, and I think this is Jesus saying, I don't know where you are from. We, we ate and drank in your company. You taught in our streets. We've got great theology. I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, you evildoers. And there will be wailing and grinding of teeth when you see Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets. Now, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets were Christians, weren't they? No, they weren't. They had never met Christ. But they eat and drink in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm always telling you that the kingdom of God should be translated um, not so much as a place, but as the word royal nature. Well, this certainly seems like a place. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the just are, are eating and drinking um, at the feast in the kingdom of God. Let's look at that. In the, the royalness of God. 
the word basilea could also be the royal court. It was where God, uh, the kingdom of God can also be described as that life in which God is king. We bask in the royal presence. Um, I've told you about paradise, that we Christians, we don't go to heaven, we go to paradise. Uh, heaven is, a, is a, a, a circumlocution, a kind of euphemism for God. Uh, heaven willing, that sort of thing. But what the good thief has promised is paradise. We will go to paradise. And paradise was the garden in which the friends of the king walked in fellowship with the king, as if his equals, as if, his, as if sharers in his royalty. And in that sense, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in the royalness of God. They're able to enjoy that friendship with the king. So uh, maybe I'm stretching it, but I, 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 I think that when you see the word kingdom, it's best translated as God's royal nature. Uh, and it's, it's being chummy with the king. When you are in the, in the royalness of God, you're right up there with the king. You know, you're, you're one of the king's buddies. So that's how I look at it. Now, let us look at this very difficult first reading, which is Ephesians, the sixth chapter, the first verse and following. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Now, St. Paul has been talking about very practical things. You know, live good lives because you represent something more than yourself. Don't be gossipy. Don't be greedy. Don't talk about those things. We just saw that. And now he's saying, children, obey your parents. Honor your father and your mother. And then he goes on, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up with the training instruction of the Lord. So this is the this is a commandment that comes with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life on earth. Um, that, that, that text says, Honor your, not obey, but honor, well, obedience is part of honor, but it's more than just just obedience. Honor your father and your mother, that it might go well with you in the land, and you will have a long life in the land. Here is translated on earth, but that in Hebrew is also in the land that the Lord your God has promised you. You want your kids to do well, to be prosperous. They're not going to prosper unless they honor you. You see, we carry a lot of people around in us. I carry me around in me, and I carry the Holy Trinity around in me if I am a, a Christian in a state of grace. I carry my mother and father in me, and if I don't like my father and I don't like my mother, then there's part of me that I don't like, and I'm not going to do well. Self-hatred is... <laughs> is the, one of the greatest obstacles to spiritual and material success in the world. When, when you, you become your own worst enemy, because you hate that part of you that is the parent that you don't like, or the parents, well, my father was a drunken bum, or my mother abandoned us, that sort of thing. How can I honor them? Well, is there anything about your father or your mother you can honor? Maybe your mother made really great biscuits honor that. Maybe your father told really good jokes. Honor that. God looks at every human being on earth, and he loves every one of them. God sees something in a parent that you don't like, no matter how dishonorable or how horrible they were. God sees something in them worth the blood of his son on the cross. Every human being, including people you don't like, including people in your family you don't like, including maybe even parents you don't like, 
every single human being is not only liked but loved by God at an extravagant price, the price of the blood of Christ. So if you can't honor your parents, if you find nothing honorable in, in a parent or both parents, say, Lord, help me to see them as you see them. Help me to see what honorable there is in them. And if you don't want to do that, well, fine, that's up to you. Uh, you can continue to live behind the eight ball. But you got to honor your father and your mother. Now, another dimension of this commandment, which comes, as St. Paul says, with a promise, the promise of spiritual and material prosperity. Another part of this commandment is that the great burden of the commandment falls not on the children, but on the parents. If you are not living honorably, why should you expect your children to honor you? If you're angry and bitter and abusive and impatient with your children, you never laugh when they're around, you never enjoy them, you never let them enjoy you, why should they honor you? The great burden of this commandment, honor your father and your mother, falls on the parents. It is not the duty so much of the children as the parents to live honorably. And we don't. Well, I'm divorcing you, honey, but what about the kids? They'll define. They're troopers. Do you really think that? You don't want to tough out a difficult time in a marriage to help the children? Well, be insincere of me. No, it would be loving of you. You know, you don't have the right to jump ship unless there's real physical or extreme psychological abuse, I believe. You don't have the right to divorce if you have children. And if you've done it, if you have suffered the tragedy of divorce in your life, speak well of your former spouse to your children. Don't teach them to hate that spouse because you're teaching them to hate themselves. The, the burden of that commandment, honor your father and your mother, falls on mother and father. Now let's get to the really tough part. Slaves be obedient to human masters with fear and trembling, not only when being watched, but as slaves of Christ. You have to understand, slavery in the ancient world was quite difficult, quite different. Oh, it's difficult, but it's quite diff different than slavery in the recent modern world. Slave, there are more slaves now than there were at the time of the Civil War, at least numerically. And I believe that people are anxious to reintroduce slavery in the world. Um, and they're doing it the way that the ancient world uh, did it. Most slaves, I suspect, in the ancient world were debt slaves. If not most, then many. In other words, when you made a deal, you put yourself and everything you owned, which meant your wife, your kids, your house, your field, you put it all down as collateral. And if you could not repay the debt and the interest thereon, the person from whom you had borrowed had the right to seize all your property, which included you and your family. And that's how people were brought into slavery. It was debt slavery. And it was part of the social contract. They also thought if you were taken in war or taken by brigands, uh, that you had the nature of a slave and were by rights enslaved. If you hadn't the nature of a slave, if you weren't a slave deep down where you lived, you would have fought to the death to resist enslavement. So they looked at it as part of the social contract. It, it was not race-based slavery. And among Jews, you were supposed to release a slave every seven years. Uh, it wasn't a permanent situation unless the slave wanted it to be permanent. What? People actually sold themselves into slavery in the ancient world because you could be a free man and starve to death. 
or you could be a slave and have a position in a household and a family and do well for yourself. It was not uncommon for well-educated Greeks to sell themselves into slavery because Greece was a very poor place. You could starve to death in Greece with all your liberty and education. And what, what you would do is you would sell yourself, invest the price of your own purchase, and then with gifts and tips and things that you made after you were done educating the children as a you know Romans like to hire well to do well educated Greeks to be the tutors and babysitters for their children and after that you could buy get you get your freedom get Roman citizenship buy a little farm and live happily ever after so slave is another thing it's under certain circumstances slaves could own property and slaves could own and did own slaves in the ancient world. It was a different kind of slavery. It was still awful, but, and if you were a difficult slave, you might be sold to the galleys or the mines, and that was a death sentence. But um, slavery was not quite what we think of it. It was part of the social, uh, social, um, the social contract, and the slavery that we experience in this country was unflinchingly evil it was race-based slavery and there was no there a slave had no rights whatsoever slavery as we knew it in this country was an unmitigated evil and this is not the kind of slavery that the bible is talking about uh so Note he he critiques parents when he says don't provoke your children to anger. Then he critiques masters. Masters act in the same way towards your slaves. Stop bullying them, knowing that both they and you have a master in heaven. With him there's no partiality. In other words, everybody is either a slave of God or not. So uh, this passage does not justify slavery, especially as we knew it in this country and as it's known now. Uh, uh, it was, as I said, part of the social contract, and slaves normally had some rights. And they, if they were Jewish slaves, the law said they were to be freed every seven years. All right. That said, let's take a break. We'll come back with a few letters, and I'm going to have a bit of an extended word of the day. So we'll we'll do letters though next. Eight eight eight. It's going to be the eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine eight eight eight. Nine one four nine one four nine. We'll be right back. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters Flexible Premium Life Insurance. For less than $12 a month, a 40-year-old can get a half million dollars of coverage. Go to relevantradio.com slash forester today. An Illinois Life Insurance Society, not available in all states. Let me jump in here. <laughs> Let's go to letters. But let me jump in here. Uh, a woman called in yesterday asking a friend of hers had sent her to hell, uh, which caused her to go to to break into tears, apparently, because she was not a member of the Catholic Church. And I said, well, there, I don't know that that's absolutely, as she said it, true. Now, what, I want to clarify that a little, because 
I do believe that beyond the church there is no salvation. But what does that mean? Extra ecclesiam nulla salus, outside the church, beyond the church. And you'll notice I asked that woman, if you listened to it yesterday, are you baptized? And she said, yes. If you're baptized, you've received the first sacrament of the church. And as I mentioned on another show, it is not necessary, though it is appropriate and it is it is required, if possible, that you be baptized by a deacon or priest. That's the normal minister of the sacrament. But anyone can baptize you. Uh, that is, that is uh, as I've always been taught, and we respect the baptism of non-Catholics as valid. And so having received the first sacrament of the church, you participate in the life of the church universal. The word Catholic means universal. Now, what I really believe happens, and I think Pope Benedict talked about this, and you know, so many people have spoken about it, is that God will give you the opportunity to to join his people in fullness in some way or other. I believe with all my heart and soul that the Catholic Church is the church established by Jesus through the ministry of the apostles. It is not the best form of Christianity. It is the only genuine full form of Christianity. Jesus designed a sacramental system. He designed a sacred leadership, which is what the word hierarchy means. These things were designed by Christ. This is the church. However, when most people think of the church, they think of of this vast structure uh, with all of these little bureaus and bureaucracies. And the, the structure of the church is a very simple one. You got a bishop who is assisted by priests and deacons, and then you got the faithful who are the body of the church. That's it. The Pope is the Bishop of Rome. Well, what of Rome? Well, what about the Cardinals and what about the Archbishop? And what about the abbots? And these are all variations on a theme. There's a very simple structure, but we think when we say the church, well, the church says, what does that mean? That 2,000 years of of tradition and 2,000 years of saints and martyrs have agreed with the gospel and applied it to their lives and their times. Um, Yeah, that's the church. When I get kind of, oh, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with people who talk endlessly about the church and which they're talking about this uh, dicastery in Rome and that, that uh, functionary in the diocese and that meeting and that policy. That's not the kingdom. You see, you preach the kingdom and you build the church. Where the kingdom is preached, the church is built. Where the church is built, the kingdom is preached. But you find all sorts of people preaching the church and building the kingdom. You can't build the kingdom. It has pleased our Heavenly Father, Jesus said, to give us a kingdom. No thanks, we're building one. We'll get back to you. You can't build the kingdom. Phrase isn't in the New Testament. You can build the church. You can uplift the church. You can edify the church, which means to strengthen your brothers and sisters. So, We see the church frequently as an organization, and that's not how God sees it. God sees it as a family, a bride, a mother, a wife. And when we say the church they, that's terrible. When we say the church we, well, it's a little better. 
But the best way to say it is the church she. And I have this idea that the Lord will introduce everybody who dies in a state of grace, no matter what their religious affiliation, he will introduce them to his bride and offer that they join his family. And when you see the church in the beauty and splendor with which God sees her, instead of the politics, the, 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 the bureaucracies, the, the, the theological quibbles, when you see the church in her splendor as the bride of Christ without spot or blemish, I think you'll be happy to join her. And to, to routinely say that, that someone who is not in an organization, I think it refutes scripture, the scripture we just read. Abraham, the prophets, the patriarchs, they were not baptized. They were not members of the church as defined by that, but they were members of the bride made so by Christ. So, you know, it is absolutely true that you must be a member of the church that Christ established. But I think there are a lot of people who think they're members of that church who have never met her and who live, oh, I don't know, who live on a grand scale when the kingdom of God is a very simple place. That's just my thought. All right. We, we're, I, I, I should go straight to letters. Where did I put the letters? Let me find the letters. They're here. They really are. Ah, there they are. All right. You know, um, God really, really wants, uh, um, really, really wants people to be saved. Um, we're so fond of, of sending people to hell. And I think we need to do everything we can to get people to heaven and, um, not be so anxious, um, to send them to hell. Um, just me. All right, let's go. Okay. Now, let's see. Letters. I got letters. Um, this is from, again, um, oh, where did I put it? This is, okay. This is from uh, uh, um, uh, Father Mike. Um, he attached an article um, about... Uh, Unfortunately, uh, and, and I, I don't want to be controversial, but I'm going to be, there is um, uh, a particular theologian um, who is well-placed, says that he believes church blessings for same-sex unions, which the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith has ruled against, is not a settled matter. And, you know... They always say, pick the hill you want to die on. This is not necessarily one of those. I don't think it's worth it. But I, I just have to say that you have to remember that Jesus defined marriage when he said, for this a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his woman. And that's the word in the text. The word wife and woman is the same word. Guinea. It's the same exact word. Um, uh, he defines marriage when he says that. Um, I think that that you have to, uh, um, you, as I said earlier, you have to enter through the narrow gate. You can't get beyond Christ. Um, no matter how eminent a theologian you are. I remember I was at a conference and uh, for priests, and there was a great conference speaker. 
uh, again, I don't want to mention names, but he was a great speaker. He said, you know, you have to get beyond the, the Jesus of history and get to the Christ of faith. And when it was a question and answer period, I went up to the microphone and said, I'm kind of stuck on the on the Jesus of history that I kind of think he and the Christ of faith are the same exact person. They laughed politely and sat me down, you know, like I'd made some unpleasant sound in a public assembly. But you can't get beyond the Jesus of history. There is no Christ of faith without the Jesus of history. And Jesus said these things. And the passage that says you have to enter through the narrow gate yeah, you, you can't get beyond Jesus. Um, and for us to think, well, we're in a new age. If Jesus had lived now, he would have said these things. Jesus is alive now, and he's still saying through the 2,000-year testimony of the church, know that physical int- intimacy is, is exists to populate heaven. It exists that souls be brought into into this world that they might live forever in heaven. That's the purpose of it. And it might feel good, but doesn't mean it is good. Um, getting drunk may be great fun, um, but it will kill you in the long run, sometimes in the short run. So uh, I, I just I can't get beyond it. I, I really can't. And, you know, if a person experiences same-sex attraction, You've got to respect them, love them, and honor them. But remember what love is. It means to will the good of a person. And the good of a person is to conform his life to the pattern of Christ. Um, And that leads me to the next letter. Um, Can imagination help a Christian? We destroy arguments and every pretension raising itself uh, against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive in obedience of to Christ. How can we train our thoughts to be captive in obedience to Christ? Again, this is about the narrow gate. Let me, I want to pull this up, but, but what we need to do is to focus on, uh, on, on, on Christ that, that uh, I guess maybe I'm just grinding that X a little too, a little too hard, but hold on. Let me, I got to look something up. Um, how do you make thoughts captive to Christ? Oh, <laughs> very simple, by prayer. Uh, that that uh, People say, well, Father, I have, I have problems with anger. I have problems with lust. I have problems with greed. These sins are, they're vices. They're, that's why they're the deadly sins. Not that they're necessarily mortal in every circumstance, but that they take over your thinking. Um... Uh, that that's that's a problem and how do you get free of them you will to be free of them and for instance you, you get angry and you're just furious um i can't help it i just get mad take a deep breath and as you let it out quietly to yourself say jesus i trust in you if you develop that habit every time you feel anger or envy coming up inside you Pretty soon it becomes a habit. Understand this, a habit of vice. And anger is a vice. Lust is a vice. The seven deadly sins are all about vice. Gluttony is a vice. Every time uh, you you um, uh, <clears throat> experience a vice, the only thing that conquers a habit of vice is a habit of virtue. Get in the habit of saying, 
uh, Jesus, I trust in you and taking a deep breath. It's almost like taking a sedative. Let's everybody do it. Let's take a deep breath. Uh, Jesus, I trust in you. It calms, at least it calms me right down. Uh, 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 it, it just is a wonderfully um, uh, uh, calming thing. So uh, you you need to be in control of your anger. You need to be in, in control. So uh, now let's look at the text. Um, to take something captive, it is quite quite a verb. It, it means... To, the word is eichmalotidzo, and it means to take captive in war, uh, to subdue, to ensnare. This passage in Scripture, we're talking about Second Corinthians chapter ten, verse five, and to to to, to enslave. It doesn't mean necessarily enslave, but it means to make war on, to take captive in war. And that's exactly what we do. We learn to struggle against our vices. And if you do that, if, you know, even if you, when you fail, I really believe the Heavenly Father is, is, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The Heavenly Father is pleased by our attempt. So um, understand that, 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 um, uh, you, you, you conquer every, every, uh, thought. In obedience to Christ, you conquer every thought. This is about freedom, not about slavery. It's our thoughts and our, our, our passions that enslave us. And when we learn to be free of them with habits of virtue, well, you know, let me lust, good old lust. You see something on the web. You see something on the street. You think a thought that you shouldn't be thinking. The devil hates the Hail Mary. I've seen that a hundred times, a thousand times. The devil hates the Hail Mary. It reminds him that a woman's body is sacred, that intimacy is sacred. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. The devil hates it. It gives you 10 seconds to think. I'm not going to go there now. If you develop the habit of saying a Hail Mary every time a thought crosses your mind that shouldn't be there, um... You're, you'll conquer a habit of vice with a habit of virtue. Habits work this way. The the less you do something, the less you need to do it. And you say, I can't help it. I just have these urges. You can you can conquer urges. Urges can be conquered. You can decide, I don't want this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a trick on the devil, and I'm going to fight this. So that's what the, the verb is, to take captive. It, it implies that there's a warfare going on. So I hope that helps, Adele. Um, let me see. We're going to take, we're going to, we're going to take a break now because I'm, I'm going to be a little long on the word of the day, I think. So, uh, oh, Gavalt, as we say, the times, they are interesting. Oh, Ben Ramiram, Em Gedolah. 
Simcas Torah song, Mi P.L. This is the feast of the, well, we just finished it. The feast of the joy of the law, which follows the, uh, the feast of, um, uh, 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 the feast of Sukkot, or Sukkot, the feast of booths. And I, I'm going to spend a little time talking about uh, Jewish sacrifice, because I maintain that if you don't understand the Old Testament, you can't understand the New. I mean, you can get something out of it, sure. There's a lot of great stuff in it. But the language that God spoke to, speaks to us in the New Testament. I'm not talking about Greek or Hebrew, but the, 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 the symbolic language in which God speaks to us is, is prefigured in the Old Testament. You know, that, that, and, and this feast of, of Simcha's Torah is, is um, part of it. Now, in, in the gospel, uh, let's see where I can find it. There's so, oh, I've got so many little things up here that uh, it's crazy making. Jesus once said that rivers of living water would flow from him. You know, when he said that, he said that at the end of, oh, we didn't do the gong. Word of the day, word of the day. There's the gong. Okay, now we're there. Um, that, that rivers of living water would flow from him. Um that's that's um, uh, beautiful. Well, the context of it was something called the the uh, the sacrifice of uh, uh, the water sacrifice. Did you know that there was a a, a ritual in which they sacrificed water? <laughs> uh, it's got a fancy schmancy name that I put somewhere. Okay, it was called the the Simchat Beit Hashoiva. Okay, I say that ten times. The rejoicing of the water drawing house. It was the last day of the feast. What does the text say? That uh, on the last and greatest day of the feast, the Gospel of John, I think, fifth chapter, uh, on the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said, um, uh, rivers of living water will flow from me. Let's see here. Um let me pull that up. I, I did pull it up, but I've just got so many so much stuff uh, that I pulled up that, well, uh, I've lost it in the midst of it. But we'll get it. There we go. There's the elevator music. Press button one. Okay. John 7. I'm sorry. John 7:38. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. He says this in verse 37 on the last and greatest day of the feast. What feast? The feast of booths. That this was a great great pilgrimage feast people camped out around jerusalem there would be millions of people there it was like a great israelite family reunion and the last and the greatest day of the feast was was uh, uh booths was and you actually lived in a lean-to you built these lean-tos and jews still build them if you live anywhere near jews an orthodox jew is going to build a little shack on his property and i, I want to spend some time talking about this but you take your meals at least because where you eat is where you live. That's certainly true for me. Uh, you take your meals in this, uh, in this sort of shack. Now, 
and it's called a sukkah, a booth. It's to remind you of your wandering in the wilderness. And uh, every day of 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 this of this feast, uh, they they um, celebrate with what's called a water sacrifice. Uh, that in the times in the temple times, uh, you poured out water uh, for all seven days of the feast of, of booths. Why? Well, because you were living in the desert, and the sacrifice of water was was quite a sacrifice. Water's necessary, but that that on the great last and greatest day of the feast in which in which there was joy and dancing, the most joyful religious celebration I ever attended was believe it or not, not a good old charismatic prayer meeting. It was I was in Jerusalem for the feast of booths. Uh, this would have been 1973, and I was there on the feast of the Simchastar, the joy of the law. And I'm at the Wailing Wall, and into the plaza in front of the Wailing Wall uh, descended almost at the same exact time all of the rabbinical schools of Jerusalem carrying the scrolls of the law and dancing. And they just grabbed you and you danced. Uh, it, 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 it's an amazing feast. And this is this is... When in the Gospel of John we read, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and called out in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow, uh, flow from within him. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Jesus is is, is talking about. Look, they're off. This this was the moment of greatest joy in in this feast. Uh, on, on the last day, when they well, the, every day they poured out water uh, into certain channels in the altar uh, in the temple. There would be these special sort of uh, drains, and they would pour water on the altar. Would go into these drains, and this was the high point of joy. And the last day was the high point of the high point of joy. And it says, "You want joy? <laughs> I got it for you. Rivers of living water." So that's the context. That sacrifice of water. Um, that rejoicing over water in the desert, the purity, the, the, all that, that's what that was about. So now you know about the water sacrifice and the Feast of Booths. Well, hey, I think it's important. Let's go to phones. 888-914-9149. This is smart. Maxwell smart. Whom do we have? Steve from Duncan, uh, Duncan, uh, Pennsylvania. What can I do for you, Steve? Hey, Father Simon, I have a uh, question, a concern about uh, the consecration. The the species are consecrated separately. The the bread is mm-hmm. consecrated into Jesus' body. The wine is consecrated into his blood. And you always say that uh, when the blood is separated from the body, there's death. And then my impression was, or I was told that when the when the little chip of the, the host the the body was dropped into the blood, then it became living again. That's the symbolism. Now, bread does not become the body of Christ, and wine does not become the blood of Christ. Bread becomes the body and blood of Christ, and wine becomes the body and blood of Christ. Bread symbolizes the body of Christ. Wine symbolizes the blood of Christ. It's called the doctrine of concomitance. We believe that the whole Christ is present in the in the host, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and the whole Christ is present in the chalice, body, blood, soul, and divinity. So it's living. I mean, that's the whole Christ, alive eternally. But it's the separateness of bread and wine 
has a symbolic meaning of of the death of uh, Christ on the cross, and the the uh, uh, intinction of a bit of the host in the in the chalice symbolizes the resurrection. Um, the the putting of a piece of the host in the chalice originally wasn't from the host that was used at that mass. A bishop the next town over might send a piece of the consecrated uh, host uh, uh, to his neighboring bishop to express their unity and solidarity, and that bishop would take that that piece that uh, appeared to be bread and put it in the chalice. That's apparently where that that uh, uh, originated uh, to express the unity uh, of the church, and that's why it was located in certain places close to the sign of peace. Now, all that said, you understand the difference. The body, uh, the whole the bread becomes the body and blood of Christ. Wine becomes the body and blood of Christ. Bread symbolizes the the body of Christ. The cup symbolizes. If it were just a symbol, big deal. But it's a symbol and infinitely more. It becomes the reality. Does that help a little? Okay, so right from each consecration, uh, consecrated separately, they are combined. They're, they're, you, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah I didn't think fa- okay. Yeah. yeah, they're... they're, they're I didn't think that it's good. Yeah, the, the whole right. Christ is present under the form of bread. The whole Christ is present under the form of wine. That's as I was right talking. From each initial yeah, consecration. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. The, the, All right. This you. happens in a timeless realm. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for calling in. Whom do we have now, dear right, voice in you. my head? You're welcome. Elaine from Simi Valley, California. What can I do for you, Elaine? Yes. I'm in an introduction to the Bible class in a Catholic uh, setting. And, did you call uh, yesterday? Yes, I did. Oh, good, 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 because I was hoping you'd call again today, yes. Go on, go on. Um, And they're saying that in this particular uh, introduction book, that uh, we are not descendants of Adam and Eve, it's a fable, and as well as Noah's Ark. Oh, how nice of them to tell us that. They know so much better than the people who were there. Give me a break. It is very interesting, if you look at genetics... We are all descended from one woman and one man. We can't quite be sure if that one woman and one man uh, uh, lived at the same time, according to genetics. But there was most certainly a first man and a first woman. And this idea that somehow, oh, it's just a fable. You know, the the, the pseudo-Darwinists, you know, Darwin was a great scientist. He was wrong. He said that every human, every living creature descended from a simple single-celled organism. And I always make the point, there is no such thing as a simple single-celled organism. But that doesn't detract from Darwin being a great scientific investigator. No, science is never 100%, and Darwin wasn't either. However, that said, people took his ideas and basically said, well, we're all descended from monkeys. And some of us, of course, are descended from a better class of monkey than others, and we have the right to enslave and terrorize the inferior monkeys. Uh, And uh, Darwinism was very popular, saying that, well, this race is superior to that race, and that spirit is alive and well. The the current administration in China talks about the superior genetic... uh, qualities of certain people over others and that's what hitler did and the nazis 
Christianity has always said we are all close relatives descended from the same the same parents and that has been pretty much absolutely shown as so from uh, genetics. We are all closely related. I think everybody on earth is a 30th cousin. And the teaching of the Catholic Church about Adam and Eve and that we are descended from the same people, all races, all human beings, that that put us way in advance of science. Science is catching up to faith in that regard. And it just makes me so angry when I hear people say, well, it's just a myth. No, it's the truth. What Does that help a little? Yes, and how about uh, Noah's Ark? Did it exist? Or oh, was sure. It a, is, a, sure, sure. Now, the problem existed. is, in, 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 uh, I think it existed. Every culture has a story about the Great Flood, and there are lots of candidates for the Great Flood, but you have to understand that Hebrew, when it was written, had no concept of the 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 globe of earth the the phrase in hebrew is kol haaretz the whole land which can also be translated the whole earth how extensive the flood was only god knows but there was an incident that everybody knew it happened a great flood uh some people theorize it was actually the flooding of the black sea uh when when the the land dam between the mediterranean and the black sea collapsed who knows when it was but there had been a great flood the, the first 9 books of the scriptures do not comment on what happened they comment on the meaning of what happened everybody knew that there was an adam and eve because human beings existed adam just means a man and eve means his wife uh um uh, so there was a there was a first human being and a wife from whom we are descended uh, a first man and a first woman from whom we are descended uh and and everybody knew there had been a flood what the scriptures are talking about is what did those things mean and certainly there's a lot of literary license in them but they talk about genuine realities and and it is intriguing to me that that as I said, that genetic science seems to be catching up with, with, with what we believed. And it just makes me so angry when scripture teachers say, now the first thing I'm going to do is destroy your faith in the truth of this book, and then we'll study it. it uh, that book is, is filled with truth. The, the first nine chapters are literally true from God's point of view. This is what God sees. This is what these things mean. And the most important word in the, in the scriptural narrative of the first of creation is seven, because seven means an oath. And the creation itself is God's oath of love. That's why it was made in six days. It was imperfect, but it's fulfilled on the seventh because God swears an oath to us in Christ. They don't see that. They just want to talk about it as if it was a scientific text. And it isn't a scientific text. It's a beautiful, poetic text text that's about incidents that really happened. Speaking of incidents that really happened, Drew's about to happen. Don't go anywhere.